Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Mike. Hello and welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. I'm Mike Cisneros, and today we're going to start with a little bit of word association. Now, when I say the word functional, what kind of object or idea comes to your mind? Something useful, maybe? Maybe a different word than useful, maybe something more like utilitarian, but something mundane, dull, boring. Maybe you conjure the image of something that's just doing a task without any kind of fanfare or notice, or Maybe you look at the pile of six books that your laptop is sitting on in an effort to improve your webcam angle, and you think, well, yeah, it's not that pretty, but it's functional. Okay, well, let's try a different word now. When I say the word aesthetics, what comes to mind? Design, beauty, elegance, maybe some cultural or historical ideas of what looks good in quotation marks. Maybe you think of aesthetics as being something subjective, you know, As the old cliche goes, it's in the eye of the beholder. But let's say I put these two words together. What comes to mind when I say the phrase functional aesthetics? It kind of seems like functionality and aesthetics, while they're not exactly opposites, but they don't necessarily go hand in hand. What would a concept like functional aesthetics look like or feel like or be like? Recently, I talked to two people who can answer this very question for us. Dr. Vidya Settler, who is the director of Tableau Research, and Bridget Cogley, who is the co-founder and chief visualization officer of the analytics consultancy Versalytics. Now, they've taken different journeys during their careers in the visualization fields, Vidya the academic path, Bridget the practical path, but they discovered that they had a shared interest in how we communicate and understand one another, and they found a harmony and balance in collaboration. Together, Vidya and Bridget have co-authored a book called Functional Aesthetics for Data Visualization. I was fortunate enough to talk to Vidya and Bridget about the book, and it was a great conversation. All about text and language and how we communicate, tone. We talked about fiats and food. We talked about bento boxes. We talked about going beyond the classic answer of it depends that we get when we ask so many questions in this space. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. It was truly an eye-opener. Without any further ado, here's Vidya Settler and Bridget Coughlin. Vidya, Bridget, thank you both for being here today. I appreciate you taking the time to join us. I want to ask you both as... Uh, Well, actually, before I ask you anything, I just want to say, as I would to anybody who has written a book, congratulations to you both. And I was curious to know, in this question for either one of you, how did you realize that you had this shared interest in these topics that would eventually become the foundation of functional aesthetics for data visualization? So we both went to this TUG in Wisconsin, so this Tableau user group in Wisconsin, and Vidya was the first to go up and present. And so I got to sit through her presentation. And it was really neat as a participant to watch because she's talking about Stroop. She's talking about bringing in these semantic principles from research into visualization. 
And I've been working on it from the other end of manually doing this. Whereas videos like here, we can use this and we can actually algorithmically pick colors for flavors of ice cream and all of these really just brilliant ideas. And so I me, mean, I was just sitting there. I mean, I, I got goosebumps watching her because it's like, here's the other side of the coin. And then when I got up, I was presenting about the logic of dashboards. And I'd gone through this years-long journey of how do you build a better dashboard? And I blogged about it, thought about it. And to see somebody look at it from a research end, to say, no, here's proof. It's not just these wild ideas that you've come up with. There's actually science behind it. And here is why. It was just, it was thrilling to me. So I got to, we went from Madison to Milwaukee and we had a good hour long car drive where we were just sitting there talking, we stopped for lunch, ate some Indian food and just really got to in a Fiat. I can't forget the Fiat. See, I I, I tune out on this Fiat. So I, I want you to picture, you know, I'm in the passenger seat, my husband's driving, and here's Vidya with her suitcase crammed in the back. Like, she can barely move, and she's just happy as a clam. I mean, I would be like, oh, but happy as a clam. I mean, just crammed in the back, totally fine with it. And we got there, did the second round of presentations, and just really kept the conversation going thereafter. I was like, okay, well, maybe we could turn this into a presentation. So we were working for Tableau Conference 2020, and we had this whole plan of da- about building out a talk. We were going to build out a talk for TC. Yeah. Well, I think we all know exactly what happened there. And right. so we pivoted. We, we decided that, okay, there is no talk going to happen. And maybe there's more here than just an hour-long talk. So let's expand this. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to add something to that. I mean, I think the, the base story is very accurate there. It was kind of, it was my first tug to be honest. So I I really didn't know what to expect. And so here I was going in thinking I would be the odd duck because my background is in natural language. And I'm, I'm sort of this esoteric researcher who doesn't really talk about mainstream charts. So I really didn't know what to expect. So I gave my talk and I saw Bridget like, standing at the back, kind of jumping up and down, given how energetic she is. And, uh, and then when she presented, again, I was pleasantly surprised because I thought it would just be a talk about best practices about creating beautiful charts. But she, she had aspects of, um, you know, how we draw meaning, what is the purpose of these dashboards, and that really resonated with me. And I think with any sort of collaboration between people, having common grounding on topics is important. And that was there. But I think we really bonded over food. We sat sat in that Fiat car and we were talking Indian food. And we actually went to an Indian restaurant before our second tug and had a good meal together. And the book is actually centered around food. We use, we weave in food as part of the underlying theme when we're talking about this book. So, yeah. And I think fast forward, the pandemic, unfortunately, put a damper on our TC talk, but it gave us more time to embrace the opportunity for a book. It was a bucket list item for me. I don't know for you, Bridget, but uh, yeah. So it was just a bunch of things that just aligned together, and here we are. 
So that's interesting that you have used food as an underlying principle of this book. It's all about, in a sense, a lot of what we talk about is about communication, but communication is, of course, connecting people, and you found a connection through food, and then you're sort of bringing this through the book. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you're using food in that sense to underpin some of the, the ideas that you're bringing forth. So the, the first part is, I mean, I, there was definitely a hunger for spaces. Uh, when you go to a restaurant, it creates an atmosphere, and there's really something there, and we, ha- we get a sense of place, and that was a part of what was in my talk, is this really old sense that we have. Like, you go into a space, you really get a sense of place, and we can do that in dashboards as well. We can do that with our charts. We can start telling people about our chart before we even use words. You look at a Financial Times chart, you immediately recognize it in part because of the branding, but in part because of how they tell the story. And so there's that piece. There's also the bento box piece. And I'll let Vidya kind of explain more because she really brought this like, here's the bento box and kind of the aesthetics and kind of paradigms behind it. Yeah, this book is not just about charts, as readers are going to discover. And I think for us, we found that food is a relatable concept. Everybody understands what a good dining experience looks like. Yeah, be it with the pandemic, things got kind of obscured. But people really understand that and appreciate it. And it was a useful analogy for for us to kind of draw in kind of the more complex terms and concepts into the book, especially given the practitioner in Bridget and the researcher in me. And that dichotomy is a complex relationship. And so food was a unifying factor. And it also kind of made writing fun. Sometimes and I, and I think a lot of writers can relate to it. Some chapters go by quite easily and some can be a drag, just the topic or where we are in our lives. And we noticed that whenever there were examples about food, it just got us excited and we, we filled our pages with words. Now, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the bento box. To, to me, the bento box is a kind of a a beautiful aesthetic juxtaposition of items that participate in a meal and the placement of each of these items in that box has a certain purpose, right? And and visually, it, it has a really nice analogy to dashboards because you have charts of different sizes trying to play with each other in a limited space where individually, none of these charts play a single role, but together they play kind of a unified whole. And so it was a really nice way to kind of play on the food metaphor in the book and to bring the bento box kind of in center into the conversation and talk about dashboards and the the aesthetics of bringing charts together as a whole. And and it's not just the container piece of the bento box. It's the harmony and the balance. It's the, you're not just piling in portions in this box. I mean, you're really thinking about 
a very specific look of that item within that container. You're really making sure that all the pieces and parts play together. You're placing items within proximity so that you're dipping the wasabi or the soy sauce and the wasabi together, that you're not dripping it all over other parts of the meal where it doesn't belong. Right. And so that's the brilliance of the bento box. And you say that the book is not about charts. So if the book is not about charts... It's not just about charts. Ah, it's not just about charts. What else is it about? Beauty as meaningful design. And, and I quote Kelly Martin with that one because it really is about taking a mixture of elegance, of delight, and counterbalancing it with kind of this fact and building together something that is beautiful, useful, and meaningful. And too often, I, I personally, I feel like a lot of the resources that exist really center on here's how to pick a chart, here's how to make a chart beautiful, but then you get to this other part, and I know I went through it as a practitioner. It's like, well, great, I know how to make a good chart. How in the world do I put them all together and make them meaningful to somebody else? And in the book, we talk about the paper towel problem. It's you have this awesome meal, you go to the bathroom, and you wash your hands. We all do this a lot now with COVID. And then you wipe your hand in front of the machine, and it doesn't spit out the towels. And it's the paper towel problem. It's like you flail and flail and flail where the sensor is. You're waving at it. You're doing the little thing. You're like putting your elbow in it. I mean, we're all doing the paper towel dance. And eventually, maybe it spits out this much, like maybe an inch or two. And so you're taking that inch, and you're using it to the max, and then you went right on the clothes. Right. And it's awful. And nobody wants that. So you've had this awesome meal. You're probably wearing good clothing, which right now, very rare to happen. So those few moments you're wearing good clothing, you don't want to go out with wet stains. Yeah. Not pleasant. And that's kind of what we do with this this book is talk about the ways in which we can bring charts together as meaningful elements. So you're thinking that it's important in that case for something to be both beautiful and useful and all working together. Is that like adding another layer of understanding or a meaning onto the dashboard in terms of instead of just thinking about an individual chart? Yeah, I I do want to say that it also draws upon Bridget and my unconventional background, so to speak. Bridget has a lot of experience in American Sign Language, as I came to know. And I came from a a natural language and linguistics background, along with graphics. So data visualization kind of came along the way. And that is reflected quite heavily in the book. As Bridget noted, there are plenty of books out there that talk about best practices on chart creation. And that, that market is saturated, to be quite honest. And we felt like there was a richer layer around communicating with data, the intentionality that people have as humans when we communicate with each other, and there's meaning that we draw from that communication. And so we really tried to hone in on that and bring it into the context of data. And and so it is, yes, it is bringing in kind of the aesthetics and function of how parts are, but adding richer layers of intentionality and drawing meaning, which we call as semantics, along with visual perception to talk about what functional aesthetics means about data. 
And I'll, I'll expand on that a bit. As, I, I, as a practitioner, I feel like there's a lot of emphasis on that perceptual side. We really focus on pruning, maximizing accuracy, and all of these layers around perception. Mm-hmm. But particularly when video was sitting there and during that tug and talking about here's how we can assign colors. And broccoli isn't blue, broccoli is green. And if we align those definitions, when we are talking about those color, to- those terms that are loaded and have additional meaning and we're matching that meaning, we really help other people along. And so it's that semantic layer that I personally felt was really just underhandled, underaddressed. And I'd been doing a lot of experiments, but it was still very experimental. And so to work with somebody who says, yeah, no, I've got proof and I can say it affects this cognitive layer and it does these things and we can also do this It was a great joy for me, and it definitely challenged me as a practitioner to also think differently and expand my own practice. Would you say that it has changed the way that you are approaching the way that you create things? Absolutely. What are you doing differently, do you think? So one of the things I'm doing, and it surprises me, but I'm adding in more text to my creations. I went through a big period of like, get rid of all the text, get all the text out of there. Do not have text on here. And going through this journey with the book, I've actually brought more text back in, you know, and I've really thought a lot more intentionally about the ways I display text, which historically has not been my focus. Is that good news to you to hear, Vidya, that bringing more text back in? Yeah. I mean, we, we do have an interesting project which we can't talk in too much detail about because it's, it's a research paper still under review. But yeah, we realized somewhere kind of midway in the book as we were talking about the, the function or purpose of text and how that plays a role with charts, that there are richer layers to it. And to me, it was kind of interesting how there was a lot of theoretical or research knowledge that I would kind of bring to the table when Bridget and I were discussing chapters and kind of the layout and the outline of the chapters. And she would pull up examples that were kind of exactly talking to the research speaks, so to say. And so it was really neat to kind of see that mapping. And one of the examples that she brought forth was kind of this brilliant use of text with charts. And it really kind of hit on the various forms of text, annotations and titles, uh, descriptive text, and, and, and looking at those categories and seeing how each of those play a unique role when uh, people are trying to communicate with data. So yeah. And I'll, I'll chime in there too. We had a part about overtexting. Mm-hmm. And for me, I kind of thought it was throwaway because it's As a practitioner, it's like, well, you don't put all this text in a huge paragraph here and then the charts over here in a separate area. You want them combined and interspersed and you want the mediums to kind of merge. And I really thought it was throwaway just because I'd been doing this so long. I kind of dismissed it. She's like, no, no, no. Like, let's really sit with this and explore this and unpack this. And to Vidya's point, analyzing the types of text, I had looked at Kelly Martin's bird plane viz for a lot of years. I mean, it's it's been the core of a lot of my ideas is how do we do visualization better? And I've gone back to, in particular, Kelly Martin's bird plane viz. And when I actually took this apart, I didn't realize how much text was on it because I didn't feel it. It was a very frictionless use of text. 
And to me, text has always represented historically friction. And it's like, well, no, it, it can be frictionless. It can be done well when we incorporate it at these different levels and really make sure that it's balanced. I mean, there's definitely a balance of that medium. Now, Vidya, you talked about how you are thinking about the merging or the interplay of uh, of intent and semantics and perception. In this case, what role is text playing uh, in the way that we're using it? Traditionally, I, I think the visualization community has always thought of text as sort of an kind of an afterthought. And to me, quite honestly, text is a first-class citizen. It is, I would argue, another type of visualization type, right? Because there, there's a certain pattern of how people see words and the placement of words, the information that's encoded in the text. There's a, there's a reading order to charts and there's a reading order to text. So there's kind of interesting commonalities uh, between chart types and text, but there's also kind of unique roles that text plays. When we were writing this book and as we were looking at previous research, we found different semantic levels or different types or categories of text, right? You can have annotations that describe trends. What is this peak? What is this outlier? And, but then you can have kind of a more of a macro takeaway where people will talk about kind of the general purpose of the chart. What, what is the story here? Um, and then you have like descriptive chart, especially with interactive visualizations where authors will say, click here. Maybe the, there's this filter widget. It's kind of interesting to see the nuances and the types of text and how their placement and verbosity play a role in terms of how people understand the information that is presented to them. It's interesting to think about, we would either need to expand what we consider visualization to include text or maybe blur some of the boundaries that maybe we have as practitioners about, well, the the chart is the visual and then the words are just things that we put around it or overlay it, rather thinking of it as all of these things are interrelated in some way. One of the things I, I think is it, it goes down to kind of multimodality. So when you think about a conversation, like right now we're having this conversation, we're recording this conversation, but we all three can see each other. So I can point to an object over here and you see the object, but everybody listening to this can't see what I'm pointing to. And that's a form of communication. I can have this whole conversation about an object over to my side, which we can see as a plant, but our listeners, until I mention that it's a plant, don't know what it is, and they don't really have a sense of how big it is. And with visualization, I can also do this kind of pointing where I'm pointing to a certain thing. I'm letting you know this is the maximum, and I'm telling you more about it, and I'm telling you within this space. ASL has a, a slightly more sophisticated system. Actually, I would say a very sophisticated system. We use things called classifiers. And in spoken language, classifiers are things like counting words. So we have a bundle of wood. So I have a unit of wood, but we know from it being a bundle that I have a certain unspecified amount. I have a batch of cookies. And so those are all classifier systems in spoken language. Well, American Sign Language has these really cool classifier systems where I can talk about a car. I can explain to you that there's a hill and that the house is down the way. And then I can take my car, I can plant it at the top of the hill, and I can 
very clearly show you how that car traverses the road. And I can say it goes down the hill, and then we're going to hit this tight curve, and then we're going to do this. And I can do all of this with one fluid motion and tell you a lot more in that one motion than I can. I could definitely use signs and explain the corner and everything else. But in one motion, I can tell you that. And so that's an ASL classifier system. And I see visualization mirroring that in a lot of ways. Well, in the sense that we are faster at seeing things than we are at processing <laughs> language. But I also think it's kind of interesting that if you see something written out, it is almost impossible if you're a literate person to not take in what you are seeing yeah. and immediately read it and be drawn to it and get the meaning that you understand from it. Whereas with a visual, you could see it, but not put any effort into figuring out what this might actually mean. So like, you might see it and you might clock, oh, this thing is higher than this thing, or I'm clocking the, the palette that you're using or whatever it is. But maybe you don't have an instant sense of what's the context here. Whereas with words and text, we might be slower, but at least we'll get an anchor faster. Yeah. One of the research papers that is cited and explained in the book talks about kind of exactly what you were saying here, Mike. We found that when there is text with charts and the text emphasizes the same information that the chart visually emphasizes, maybe a peak, because as our human visual system is pretty strong, so we can our eyes are immediately drawn to peaks and troughs or outliers. But having text that describes these visual features that are emphasized in the charts helps readers to take away that doubly emphasized feature. And the power of text in this context is it can add additional information to explain why a certain phenomena is happening. So it, it, it really plays in nicely with the chart because if the chart is emphasizing a trend or a peak and the text is describing the peak, but also perhaps explaining why that is happening readers take away from both pieces of information and they integrate it when they are uh, trying to make sense of what is going on. And in the practitioner community, I mean, we've had a level of this kind of, I, I feel it's like folklore wisdom, where it's like, you put this in, you do this, you do this, but it's never explained why. And so my inner four-year-old stands at the corner, screams why endlessly. And so having the research side of the book explained very, very, very clearly this is why, and this is what we've seen to this effect, it really satisfies my inner four-year-old. When I think back to your idea of the, the folklore wisdom that we had been taught, I think of being told, you should never double encode things. It's a, waste of, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. And it sounds like from what you're saying is, no, no, that's what helps people to remember is when there's multiple, when you're reemphasizing something in multiple ways. Yeah. Hence why I've been bringing in more text. And I think the flip side is from a research angle, we, we run a lot of studies and we, we, we have these hypotheses and we try to validate the hypotheses. But it's kind of neat to see that practitioners like Bridget subconsciously do a lot of these things because I would be talking about certain examples from papers and she would be like, yeah, I actually have an example that does this. So it really tries to kind of operationalize a lot of the research that we tend to do almost as 
kind of constrained lab experiments and see how they actually are put into practice in the real world. So I think there's kind of a neat two sides of the coin, so to speak, for the book. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you get into in the book. Information was visually documented differently. Uh, throughout history, depending on the context or depending what era we were in. And I was wondering if there were any things that were uh, super interesting to you that you discovered as you were looking through this historically. One of the quotes that we pulled in is from Marshall McLuhan, and that is the medium is the message. And so you look at kind of the Ashango bone, where it's like you've got an actual bone and you're etching marks into it. Whereas when you're dealing with paper, that encourages a different kind of expression. And then when you finally get to the computer, that really changes that expression. And I don't think we've fully even made that pivot. And so we're still learning from, okay, we spent hundreds of years effectively sketching on paper. And now we're translating this medium to an interactive medium. It's still 2D. And then we've still got some data physicalization that we're playing with as well. That's a part of it. Like we're still learning all the ways that we can play with the medium. The other thing is the culture. The culture itself affects how we render visualization. So we, we show Du Bois in there and kind of the spiral chart. And what else is he trying to say with some of the, the charts that he's selected? Yeah, I, I also will add, I think, for the perception part of the book, given that there are, again, a lot of books that talk about visual perception generally, we found it kind of neat and interesting to draw from other examples in other disciplines, particularly from art. Impressionist painters have, I think, from way back, starting with Monet and and other artists from his era, really understood how the visual system worked and used that effectively with paint as a medium to really portray the mood or the essence of the painting that, you know, that they were picturing in their mind. So we have an example of Monet's sunrise painting where the sun is it has the same luminance or the level of brightness as the rest of the sky but when you when you stare at that painting it actually looks like the sun is shimmering and back then we didn't have research papers on isoluminance and how our visual system reacts to it but he understood that and it was brilliant because, and so we have an example where we take, and this was drawn from Margaret Livingstone's uh, book and she's a professor at Harvard. And, and she uses this example that we draw in from where she shows a black and white version of the sunrise painting. And in that, because the sun and the sky are the same brightness, you can't see the sun. It just, it's, it's faded into the sky. But the moment you see it in color, you see that shimmer because the eye is trying to distinguish the boundary of the sun with respect to the sky. And they're both the same luminance, but different hues or different colors. And our, our visual system reacts to that. So it, it was kind of interesting to draw in from other disciplines and other walks of life to really kind of hone in on to perception. And another piece that we embraced in the book and taking advantage of the pandemic was the use of arrows to depict motion. Um, 
So Barbara Traversky has a, a really good book called Mind in Motion, where she talks about the use of arrows and how ubiquitous they are in our environment, right? We, we kind of understand the notion of directionality. And we draw that into the book. I mean, we like a lot of small businesses had arrows indicating six feet apart, go down this line, right? When you're ordering your food, go out this way. So we kind of bring those elements into the book when we're talking about perception and meaning and what that means for data visualization. Yeah, I love, I love the university of arrows, universality of arrows, because when we do see it in like wayfinding in the world, if it's not what we expect. We really feel it, but we can't quite put our finger on why. Like, wait a minute, am I supposed to go forward or up? Mm-hmm. Bridget, you were talking about we've moved from sketching into our computers and there's much more capability there. Is, are arrows to depict motion necessary or is actual motion possible? It, it's a balance of both. I mean, you, you definitely don't want to oversaturate people. I'm also one of those very sensitive people. So if you put too much motion in something for me, you're definitely going to cause a migraine at best. And so I'm very sensitive to how we put motion in. And sometimes you need that static so that you can see things, so that you can observe it in its state. And then you also need the motion too. So it's like, here's how it moves. And then here's the summary of it moved from here to here. And I think there's validity in both. There's that context coming back again that you were talking about. Always. And that, that you're going to hear a lot of that with the book is a lot of times in the practice world, we answer with it depends. And so part of what we're trying to do is break apart it depends into, well, based on these semantics you want to encode or based on your intent, you can rely on these semantics and encode this. And so that's kind of what we're trying to move towards with the book is really giving language to some of these parameters that normally you have to go through this long list of, well, it depends on this, 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 and this. It's like, no, actually, if you distill it down, you're really only looking at this aspect in this case. Yeah. And, and Mike, you, you kind of mentioned this notion of wayfinding. And to Bridget's point around context, we have an interesting... I would say an interesting example in the book around wayfinding and how it differs from place to place, culturally, also just geographically. And we have an example of how wayfinding works in India. There's a picture of a street scene. And in India, and I've found out that in a lot of other countries too, uh, particularly South America, somebody actually reached out to me about that where we have no notion of uh, directions, like north, south, east, west. Want to find directions, it's like, go straight. There's a tree there, a big banyan tree. Take a left, and there's a small shop there. Take a right, and maybe you'll see a cow grazing over there. Trust me, it doesn't move much. And then go further down and ask somebody, good luck, right? And... Mm -hmm. um, Google, actually, when they were trying to come up with map directions for their software, they realized very quickly on that pushing directionality into the India market was not going to fly because that's not how wayfinding works there. So it was landmark-driven wayfinding, kind of exactly how it is. So kind of going back to Bridget's point, context is really important when we are trying to communicate information and we want to bring technology 
where people are and really embrace the types of models that people normally do rather than trying to teach them a completely different paradigm. And as a practitioner, I mean, we have a lot of tension with our audience members. We, we have a lot of tension around, it's a training issue. I, I can explicitly remember even 10 years back, it's a training issue. And my Six Sigma training going, no, it's not a training issue. No, it's not. And a part of what we've got in the book is a whole chapter on literacy. And literacy changes the culture. It feeds back into it. And it completely transforms how we think. You are not the same person once you've learned to be literate. And it's the same thing with charts. We we have a new form of literacy with chart reading. And you and I read charts in a very different way than other people do. And they're far more semantically meaningful to us than they are others. And so a part of what we have to do is build that Dr. Seuss, here's the cat in the hat. And not only that, but then build up all the stages. And we kind of go from cat in the hat to war and peace a lot of times. And so part of what we've got to do is really build in those easements. And the other piece is data literacy is not purely a, hey, I can read and write this chart. It's a navigational part. And so part of what we're addressing with this book is building in the systems of rather than thinking about, okay, you can read this or you can't read this, thinking more navigationally of, okay, if you break your arm, where do you go? Do you go to your doctor's office? Do you go to an urgent care? Do you go to the ER? You definitely don't go to your doctor's office unless your doctor is in the hospital you either go to an urgent care or an ER. And that is a navigational component. And our making dashboards is very much in the way of building those navigational systems for people. We don't all need to be doctors, but we all do need to at least have a base understanding of how the system works and then build in the uh, extra loops so that way when somebody doesn't know how it works, they have tools to get there. So it's not a training issue, you're saying, for an individual dashboard, but in a greater sense, in terms of making sure that the literacy of the people that you are working with is increasing large. In that sense, it is sort of uh, an overall, yes. And, and as you say, building in steps so that, I guess, no matter where you are on that literacy plane, as you visually described uh, in this audio medium just now. Yes. Um, yes. That uh, <laughs> We brought the sign language interpreter on here to yes. speak, and I'm going to sit here and make motions at you. That's uh-huh. not going to work very well. I call it building in guardrails. I mean, you think about when you take a really sharp turn, you don't want to just leave it open. I mean, sure, it might be prettier, but you're going to go out off the cliff a lot easier. And so if you build in that extra little railing, you're far more likely to keep people on the road. You also put in the signage ahead of time and let people know maybe you want to think about slowing down. And then you put in the extra signage. No, really, you want to think about slowing down. So as a metaphor, I understand this. Like, but <laughs> In what, practice. What are, yeah, in practice, what are some of the things that you could be doing in order to make sure that these guardrails are in place for the people who are using the products we're creating? It it does go back to some of that textual medium. I mean, that's where thinking about the charts, thinking about the exposition style. So in the book, we talk about some different exposition styles. And to me, this is that essay writing template. In school, you learn how to write essays. And, but the goal of the essay is so that other people can read it. You, you kind of create some of these formulas so that people can follow it. Yeah, we, we yeah. do have some metaphors in the book where we, we we actually use triangles, I mean, to be very specific here, where the triangle is this sort of trifecta between research theory and practice. And we have call outs of certain points 
in every chapter kind of key takeaways. And they are represented by, is this very researchy? So there's a dot in the triangle that's closer to research. Is this kind of both research and practice? And you'll see it more in the center of the triangle. So we have we have kind of a, a meta visual scheme in the book for, for these takeaways. And then closer to the end of the book, we have almost like a cheat sheet with, with a list of guardrails where we kind of collectively bring uh, some of the key triangles from each of these chapters. And uh, it's almost like a rubric that uh, actually where, where Bridget crafts this practitioner checklist for people so that they can as they're creating their their dashboard or their charts, they can kind of validate that against this rubric and try to see how they're faring. It's a 108-point inspection if you want. So you go and you get your 18-point your inspection. Well, no, we've got a 108-point inspection. It's broken up by section. I've actually used it with clients, and it's been really beneficial in those conversations. I'm looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> and we have the triangles within it. Like that was our, our design accomplishment. It's like, here's all the, the points. Here's the triangles that associate with it. I mean, it just, it's definitely a very whole chapter there, but it really helps kind of shift the thinking and not all things are applicable. So we have certain things where it's like, yeah, this doesn't apply in this case. Now, there are topics that you are going to be talking about in this book. I love this idea, the the idea of cohesion. You use that as a way to uh, make our messages memorable, bind our communication together, make it stickier. And I wanted to ask, what can we do to make messages cohesive and, and stick together better for our audiences? Yeah. So there, so there are different aspects of cohesion, so to speak. And, and we, we sort of craft this around this notion of what we call an analytical conversation between a human and a computer or a human to another human through charts and data. And cohesion consists of a, a lot of higher order concepts around topic, right? You, you want to make sure that that is represented, say, in a dashboard or in, in a chart, really hits on the, the main message that the author has for the audience. The elements visually all need to play a role. We kind of talked about charts and text a few minutes ago. And so, so how do all these components emphasize and build upon that main message that the author has for the audience? And we also touch upon the notion that these dashboards and these charts are not just static. We have gone way beyond just a static print medium. They're interactive. There are different types of modalities. We do have examples around clicking and pointing to stuff, as we were talking about with Bridget drawing in from her ASL background. So with interactivity baked into a lot of these charts because of the tools and the medium that they're built in, how does interactivity play an important role as part of that cohesion. So elements need to react to that interactivity in a semantically meaningful way that doesn't disorient the reader. There are There's a certain use of color and shape that draws the audience to certain aspects of the chart. And its medium is the message. You really need to figure out 
the the goal of the message and the medium in which that those dashboards and charts are brought to life. And particularly around the cohesion aspect, I mean, that was where I was able to bring in a lot of the interpreting components. So really looking at how do we communicate and what ways do we communicate? Very lightly in that chapter, I introduced the concept of registers. So that is how formal or informal we are. And that associates power. So you think about, are we close in relationships? So are we friends talking? Or is it, say, a teacher and a student talking? And all of that communicates kind of a power or a distance. And so that's in there. But the other part that's in there is kind of drawing in some of the things I spent almost two years exploring around how do I make the shape of this look a certain way? How do I use color, not just to make it pretty? And and I I really cringe sometimes personally when it's like, oh, it's pretty. It's like cringe. And it's using beauty to communicate meaning. It's when we see this with interpreting. I mean, American Sign Language is a very visual medium. So you can see when interpreters are very jerky and it's really hard to follow them. It's not a cohesive message because they're not smooth. Now, there is being so smooth that you're not making it meaningful either. So it's still a language. We, we expect a certain way that the language looks. And it has to be visually cohesive. So when I'm talking about going to the store in American Sign Language, I specifically put the store in a location. And so I put it on the left. I'm at the right. And then I, my verb has to agree. If I'm going to the store, I have to agree. If I'm leaving the store to another third destination, well, I'm not coming back to the destination I already used. I'm going to a third different kind of location. And so I have to be aware spatially of how I'm using space and for pronouns and my verbs have to agree it, it goes back to that bento box metaphor that we yes. brought up earlier right they're not they're, keeping right? <laughs> like there is a certain intentionality built into where things are placed how big they are you can't have wasabi in the largest container right in the center because it's more of a supporting food item in that holistic mm-hmm. experience. So really understanding the role of every single thing that's put into stuff and and how that purpose is expressed through meaningful placement and color and size and text is what we try to bring out with the notion of cohesion. I love it. And there's this idea, the idea of register that you brought up, Bridget, I want to go back to that for a second, because I can see how you could do that in the words that you choose to put around it and the, the language that you elect to include. But are there other ways that you could communicate or, or that you can imply a, a specific register in the visualizations that you Absolutely. Creating. So charts have a register. And so I can use, I mean, it's sometimes the difference between a bar and a line. When you think about presenting trends over time, it's like, I might use a line chart. I might use an area chart. I might even use bars, not because I think one or better is better from the task standpoint, but because I think one is more useful to the audience themselves. And that's a register choice. I'll oftentimes choose to present time in bars solely because I know people understand them. And it is a register drop. It's I know that you don't like the lines are very abstract. So and I'll other times I will take and fill in a line very lightly and make kind of an area chart with the line very heavily emphasized. And that's a register check. That is me saying I recognize that the line is very abstract. I'm giving you this extra additional anchor to zero so that you can see this. You can sense here's the tangible aspect. 
but then I'm still focusing your eye on the movement itself and not the literal stack. That's really interesting. I would never think of it as it's not necessarily meeting people where they are. It's a little bit of that, but it's also the way in which you want to communicate. And that's what register does. I mean, we, as humans, we acutely are aware when people are using a certain tone with us, when somebody communicates, I'm better than you. And we can sense it immediately. We can automatically know, okay, you said that you think you're better than me. And we respond. And we can do that with our charts. We can sense it in writing. We can sense it in all these different mediums. It's just that we've never consciously looked at it in charts. We also, I have a funny story about, you know, I come from kind of an academic set of sensibilities where the language is is very academic and quite often, especially initially when I was writing, Bridget would be like, you need to lower the register, Vidya. It's, it's, It's a bit too academic. And we kind of embrace that. It's like, as we were writing the book and bringing in the researcher and practitioner perspective, how do we actually kind of unify our registers just based on our background in a way that would be consumable by the readers of our book? Um, So it was kind of an active practice that we did while writing the book, in addition to just conveying the notion of register in the book. And it, it helped because I think, too, I mean, we come from such very different backgrounds and different disciplines. So as a practitioner, we ferment in our own terms. So it's like, yeah, the KPI, this, that, and we spout off a lot of our own jargon. And it's like, well, what do you mean by that? And so it's like, oh, I have to clarify this. So we had a lot of these kind of exercises around clarifying and refining and lowering the registers so that it could be consumed by a broader audience or unifying a register when you are two distinct voices, but there's nothing in a book that might necessarily express to a reader who's talking in this moment. What's really interesting is there's definitely bits and pieces you can tell was written by one or the other, I think. There's definitely that blended voice, and then there's there's definitely spaces where it's like, oh, Vidya definitely wrote this. If there's a lot of purple words, Vidya wrote it. If you're like, a toddler wrote this, I wrote it. (laughs) Well, you have the curse of knowledge already, so you know who wrote each one, so we'll see if readers can figure it out when the book actually does come out. There was one uh, one last phrase that, or idea that you introduced that I'm curious about, and that's the idea of scaffolding. And you were talking about how this is a way for not just authors to express their intent when they're exploring data, but for readers to express their intent when they're exploring data too. And I found that intriguing. So maybe you could talk about scaffolding a little bit. So scaffolding, just for, for people who are listening in, is the notion of providing some support, whether it's helping people kind of wayfind, um, you know, how they actually navigate through the dashboard, how they interact with it. And it, it's also kind of to set up the reader or the viewer up for success. So we, we have a, a nice opening example in the book where we show a set of instructions, uh, visual in. Uh, instructions along with text and arrows to show people how to create a paper airplane. I mean, for a bunch of us who have assembled IKEA furniture, my, my husband will start way at the end and try to work himself backwards, but you know, he's an anomaly. But for a lot of people who are trying to use instructions for like furniture assembly, I think can relate to this. There's 
a set of instructions uh, and Lego is another really good example, right? So you have you have the visual medium of trying to guide people along with some text. And so we really hone into that concept when we're talking about interactive dashboards, where how, how do you actually show the position of a chart? Maybe you want to, maybe the author wants the viewer to start from a particular chart. So perhaps making that chart larger than the rest putting it perhaps in the center, adding some text, start here, are different ways of scaffolding or supporting the reader so that they're set up for success. And the the other the advantage that you get that you don't get from kind of static assembly instructions like building a Lego model or IKEA furniture is embracing interactivity and having a conversation. So as humans, when we're talking, if I don't understand what you're saying, Mike, or I need a clarification, I will say, could you mind repeating that? Or could you say that? Do you mean this? Do you mean that? And you will try to clarify. You might lower the register for me or use an alternative word, right? And those are kind of ways in which we scaffold a conversation and we don't really think about it that way. And so we draw in aspects of scaffolding kind of from the traditional print medium, but also from human conversation and try to come up with a set of principles where we can set up a reader for success, as well as set up an author for success when they're trying to portray information through charts. And sometimes in the practitioner community, I mean, we may treat components of this as like a visual language or brand guidelines or just some systems that we use to help people along. So that might be, you know, on Lego, they've got this cute double arrow and that lets you know you flip it. And so the more you see that, the more you start almost predicting it. So you can see, okay, they've flipped it here and you get faster and faster at it. And then you really stop having to look at each individual one. And you can almost look at the steps and aggregate. And that's a lot more like how we read. So when we read, we're not just looking at the word. We're actually looking at the words in front and back and kind of flowing through that whole process. Excellent. If there's any one thing that you hope to see practitioners do differently as a result of reading this book, or if there's one simple thing, the biggest thing you hope that people do differently or change about their process as a result of reading this, what do you think that would be? I think the the biggest piece is really understanding the purpose of what the charts are used for and determining how we can or how authors can build in the intentionality or the purpose through the thoughtful use of color, size, text, and any other elements that can set up a reader for success, I think is going to be the biggest takeaway for a book. For, for me, it, it's building in that semantic system. It's having beyond just perception. And we talk a lot on the practitioner side about intent, but building in semantics to support all of that. That to me is what I hope. Fantastic. I know it's 
hard to choose just one thing you hope people do because there are so many great ideas in the book. But uh, that book, by the way, is Functional Aesthetics for Data Visualization. It is due out on September 20th in the U.S. from Wiley Publishing. So uh, pre-order it now. Get your copy. I can't wait for people to get this into their hands. And there's a little tiny Fiat on the cover. So thank you once again for joining us, Bridget Cogley, Vigia Settler. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you.